0: Okay, if you have uh, Bibles, please turn to First John as we continue to move through uh, this short but dense uh, letter. Uh, it's it's packed with uh, challenging challenging stuff, good stuff. Um, and the the title of the sermon I don't know if I should have titled it this, but th- does God love the world? And we've all heard John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Obviously, there's a sense in which He loves the world. Um, In Matthew 5, Jesus makes it clear that the reason why you're supposed to love your enemies is because God does. God God sends the rain. God allows the sun to rise on the evil as well as the good, the just as well as the unjust. Even those who persecute Christians, God still has sort of a common grace, a common posture of love, as you will, toward the world. Uh, I think of how God handled Cain when Cain disobeyed. And God should have struck him dead. I mean, he killed Abel. He should be killed. And God has every right to take his life. But God encourages him and even warns him before his action and marks him so that he'd be protected. And uh, God obviously demonstrates a posture of uh, of mercy and kindness to everyone in the world that's made in his image. Uh, when James teaches us to treat each other with respect, uh, he appeals to the fact not that they're Christian, but that they're made in God's image. But the text today tells us not to love the world. Don't don't, don't do it. Yeah, you know, don't do not love the world. God doesn't love the world, and there's this another sense in which God does not love the world, uh, and so that might be a little confusing on the face of it, especially after all that John has been telling us about loving. Uh, being a sign of being a believer. If you're truly in fellowship with God, you'll have the love of God in you and you'll be loving. In fact, God is love. Uh, But in this passage, there's uh, what we're not supposed to love and that is the world. Uh, So turn with me to uh, 1 John. You'll see it right there in chapter two. Uh, And we'll just start with verse 15. We've got three verses in front of us. A little tight little paragraph here he says do not love the world this this letter doesn't have a lot of commands but this is one that is clear do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him so one of the things we need to do right is is define terms words have a range of meaning you can use the same word to refer to different things you all know that right especially those of you who are bilingual and you're ever asked to translate something and you have to think quickly how do you translate that because that word doesn't work the same in the other language so words can mean different things you look up a word in the dictionary and you have meaning one meaning two meaning three right so that's pretty basic well the word world is used in various ways uh, even within uh, this book, the word world doesn't always mean what it meant in another verse. Um, it can just mean location, uh, the, the, geograph- the geographical place of this world, this is where we are. Uh, it can mean the group of unbelievers. But it can also mean the system of the world, the attitudes, the beliefs, the behaviors that define the world's opposition to God. It is the traits, the attributes, of uh, the belief system that marks uh, opposition to God. And those who are in this world who are not believers embrace this belief system on one level or another. They might describe it differently, but at the end of the day, they're in—they're at enmity with God. They're in opposition to God, and that's what he means by world now you might think well why would you need to say that why would, why would john need to say hey this dark this darkness that you've been saved from don't love it but of course he has to say it because we are inclined to love it there's a part of us that does love it and if we're not careful we will continue to love it and grow in our love of it and so these behaviors and attitudes and values that define the world that is opposed to god are easy to enjoy they're easy to like they're easy to desire and he says not just the world right he says or the things that are in the world so he's he's not talking about two different things you have the world and then the things in the world he's just emphasizing what he's talking about the things that are in the world make up those things that oppose god and so we'll talk about more about that in just a moment but i just want you to see here there's two opposing positions and they're mutually exclusive you can't be in one and the other you can't have one foot in one and one foot in the other you can't sort of half step it you either love god or you love the world if you love the world the love of the father is not in you if you love the father you don't love the world uh, they're, they're two polar opposite extremes And so you remember when Jesus taught in Matthew 6, you can't serve God and money, right? There's an example. You can serve God and have money, but you can't serve God and serve money. You can love the Father and be in the world, but you can't love the Father and be of the world. You can't love the Father and be worldly. You can't be godly and worldly at the same time, right? And so there's not really a a middle ground. There's not really this twilight in between the light and the dark. Uh, But in fact, if you do love the world, that is a sign that the love of the Father is not in you, as he says in the second half of verse 15. Uh, So again, he's writing to assure his readers that you are believers, you're believers if you love, but you're not a believer if you love the wrong thing. If you love the world, that's a sign actually that the love of the Father is not in you. And so you might call it love but it's not God's love, that's something else. That's something else going on. And so he makes it clear. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I remember when I was a little boy collecting uh, baseball cards and of course, you know, growing up in in Massachusetts near Boston, uh, my dad had pretty much every Red Sox game uh, on TV growing up. And so of course, the main cards I was collecting were the Red Sox cards and that was great. Uh, but I would see other teams, and I would like their colors, or I would like their logos, or I would like certain players. And I remember one day telling my dad, you know, the Red Sox are my favorite team, but this other team—I can't remember what team it was—but some other team that I was into at the time, just because I liked the baseball cards. This other team is my second favorite team. And I remember him just looking at me and going, "No, right? You can't have a favorite team and then a second favorite team. Uh, if the Red Sox are your team." That's your team, right? There's no, and this team as well. Uh, th- this this is a demand for loyalty, right? God is putting a stake in the ground and saying, "There's no such thing as I I like you, but I like this. Uh, I do love you, Lord, but I, you know, sometimes I just love this too." And it's no. That means you do not love the Lord. You convince yourself in your mind that you still love the Father, but when you have uh, uh, a, a craving and a desire. For things that are contrary to the lord it actually shows not just that you need you have some growing to do but actually it shows that the love of the father is not in you that's tough right um that's difficult but it's a sign that john is shown is is giving us to demonstrate here's what people that talk the talk but don't walk the walk here's what they look like if you look at their lives they might uh, know a lot of christian language they might show up to church, but what their lives look like is they love the same things the world loves. Remember last week we talked about love looking different than the world. Everyone in the world loves the lovable. Everyone in the world loves those who love them back. Christian love is loving those who even persecute you. They revalue you and you don't revile them back. That it's different. It's distinct. So that's on the positive side. But on the negative side, the things that entertain the world, the things that make the world clap, The things that make the world give a thumbs up, the things that the world follows and likes, right? Uh, The trends that are exciting to the world don't excite you because those things that are in opposition to the Father, uh, you do not love because you love the Father. And so, uh, if you've ever heard someone talking smack about a best friend or your spouse, Uh, that sort of anger that you feel uh, when someone else is being maligned that you love, I mean, compound that, extrapolate from there. You love God. The world hates God. How can you love the world? They're in opposition to him. Um, Well, that takes some defining. uh, But the point here is that we're to love God. We're to love God by rejecting the desires of this world. Uh, and john describes what he means by world by describing what's in it everything that's in it and so in the next verse he says for all that is in the world like i said we'd come back to that because he already mentioned that uh do not love the world or the things in the world and he gets back to in verse 16 for all that is in the world what is he talking about is he talking about mountains is it wrong to take a hike mountains are in the world is he talking about food Food is in the world. Should I not eat food? Is he talking about sports? Should we not play sports? Oh, no, no, no. He, he's going to define what he means by the things that are in the world that are in opposition to God. And he gives us three items. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three things that that summarize the things that are in the world that are against uh, that are against God. That that show that when you love these things, the love of the Father is not in you. And if the love of the Father is in you, then you don't love these things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we'll we'll move through through these pretty quickly, just unpacking what what they look like, what he means by them, and it's not really all that hard. But you'll see the word desire in the first two of the three, right? desire means craving right it's it's you it's a want and there's the desire of the flesh now some bible translations specifically translate this as uh, a physical lust uh, but it, it includes that but it's broader than that you know but by flesh he doesn't only mean uh, a, a lust kind of thing but of course that's a part of it but is It is a carnal desire, right? The word "carnal" means fleshly, right? From (laughs) if any of you know Spanish, carne, right? It's meat, it's flesh, and that's that's the word here. Just the things that the 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 flesh wants that are opposed to what the spirit should want, the things that are opposed to righteousness. So no, he's not talking about taking hikes. He's not talking about skiing. He's not talking about enjoying. Enjoying a plate of food. He's talking about the fleshly desires uh, that are sinful, that scripture describes as antithetical to God's character and righteousness. And those are the things that are the desires of the flesh. And it's interesting that he then moves it to the desires of the eyes. And we think of how many sinful things begin with what we see and what we covet and what we envy. Uh, we don't have it, but our eyes get a hold of it, and so we want it. And so part of being blind and stuck in the dark is not that you don't see anything. It's that the things that you do see and want, the things that you want to go after, you blindly go after them and desire them uh, because you don't see that they're a path to destruction and that they don't fulfill you at all. And so it's these cravings, these desires of the flesh, of the eyes. And then he moves to the pride of life, which is a little trickier to, to unpack and different translations might handle it differently. Um, but he doesn't mean proud to be alive, right? Like it, it's wrong to be happy that you're still breathing. I mean, that that's not what he means, but by pride of life, he means a, a boastful arrogance for the stuff of life, the things you can accumulate in life. You might go, wow, that, that might sound like a little bit of a reach, but the word life there, uh, bios is often used in scripture for possessions, property. Material wealth, the things that you can accrue in life. If you take a quick look at the same book, the same book, First John three seventeen, he says, "If anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him?" You see how that's the same concept. You say you love God, you have goods, but you don't meet your uh, someone else has need of what you have extra of, and you don't give it to them. That's loving the world instead of loving God. The word for goods, the world goods, goods there is bios, It's life. And so what John means uh, by this word in this context is not loving that you're alive. That's great. It's not like we're supposed to be suicidal. That's not what he's talking about. A boastful, proud arrogance for the stuff you've got. You have a lot and you want more of it. And so this moves it into not just interior desires that we have, but the attachment we have to external things, things that are external to us. And those, uh, those kinds of cravings, uh, those kinds of desires and wants are dangerous, especially for those of us who have so much stuff. We've got so much stuff. Any one of us can put probably two-thirds of our stuff up on Craigslist tomorrow And be completely fine the next day. I mean, we're we're complaining because we went to Jewel, and the Ho Hos were gone. And there's people starving in other places of the world, right? This is not difficult yet. We we haven't hit difficulty yet. Difficulty is not that they're out of Twinkies, right? Difficulty is starving. And so we're 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 so comfortable uh, with all the stuff that we have. And I would commend to you that if you've got a bunch of stuff laying around, hey, we do too. We're, we're using this this at-home time to just really try to clear clear a lot of things out of our home that just collect over time uh, that are not necessary. Um, and so we wanna make sure that we're not suffocated. You remember when Jesus talks about uh, the soil and the seed that's planted, the, the, the gospel seed is planted in this, in these different kinds of soils and three of the four soils don't make it right? And one of them is because of possessions, all right? You want, you start out in the Christian life, you enjoy something about Christianity, but at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, you like stuff more than God, and that is a sign that you will not endure, and maybe this is a time to really reckon with what makes us comfortable, uh, and what really are we depending on, what do we love what gets us up in the morning uh, what keeps us going uh, what keeps us uplifted and encouraged it should be the truths that we learn about our unchangeable father this father whose love doesn't change based on circumstances but if we love what circumstances can provide then uh it's a misplaced love and we cannot serve both masters we love god We love God in as much as we do not love the world. We reject these desires, these tastes, these cravings that are natural to our flesh. And we reject those things. Um, And the things in this world that are cravings, it's not just the things that we crave, but it's the craving itself. It's the wanting of it, right? So having a, a car, a new car, It's not wrong to have a vehicle. It's the wanting of the fourth vehicle. It's the wanting of the better vehicle, the newer model. Uh, It's the hankering to have it, right? And so even things that are normal, even things that are just sort of mundane and not really necessarily righteous or unrighteous, it's the craving of it and the desire to have it that is unrighteous. And so, uh, like I mentioned, the things in the world that aren't evil, like food. God gave us food. He designed our bodies to eat food. But can we idolize food? Can food become your one of your primary sources of comfort? And so when you're feeling a little anxious, you go directly to the pantry. I mean, that, that could be an issue. That could be a problem. Uh, because that's not what we should be craving to get peace. Um, it's good to be healthy it's good to work out. You all know that I'm, I'm pretty committed to exercise. I try to eat right. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. God gave us these bodies, we should be stewards of them. But if we're doing those things because we're obsessing about our image, oops, right? That's a wrong craving. The desire is moved from glorifying God with my stewardship of my body to glorifying myself with what I can do with my body. And so that's where it's difficult. We would all be like, oh, we all hate murder. We all hate uh, people that are racist. We all hate bigots. It's it's the areas where something good becomes something that we crave, where it's tricky. And we love those things more than we love God. Uh, And that is is a bad sign. It's not a good sign. And so uh, they're not necessarily evil things, but we can covet those things and those can be evil desires. And oftentimes, uh, church, that's marked by dissatisfaction. We desire because we don't, we're not satisfied with what we do have and we want more. And it's a real big problem to us in our hearts if we don't get what's more. And it eats us up and we crave more. That's the sign. Uh, so I, I'm, I wanna pose this question to you. It's really important. It's, it's uh, challenging, I know, and it takes a lot of introspection. But is there anything in this world that if God were to take it away from you, you would have a really big beef with God? You, you, would, you would no longer serve God. You would no longer be able to bring yourself to praise Him. You remember Job? God, God the, the Lord gives and He takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, can, can we say that? We can say that with a lot of stuff. But there may be one or two things or people in our lives. That if God took that away, no deal. I will not serve you anymore. Uh, God may bring that kind of testing into your life, and if He does, you have to you have to already have been making sure that your heart's uh, your heart is set on the Lord, and not on things that you can get out of the Lord, because if you do. Uh, If you love those things more than God, if you love the gift more than the giver, uh, then that is not the love of God. That's something else. And really quickly, as I think about cravings of the flesh, and I I mentioned that the craving of the flesh is not limited to lust, but that it does include lust. Uh, I think that's a very pertinent thing. Uh, Part of how we demonstrate what we enjoy is through entertainment. What are we entertained by? What when we're entertained by something we we, you know we like it, obviously, we enjoy it, we laugh at it, we enjoy it. Uh are we entertained by the same things that the world is entertained by? Are we entertained by things that play on our carnal desire, uh fleshly desire, including lust? I think that's a big issue. I have to give credit here to uh, 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 Kevin DeYoung, uh, who pointed this out. I'm I'm actually looking at a uh, a Wikipedia page here on the motion picture production code, otherwise known as the Hays Code. And uh, just give me a a minute here to to unpack this. I think it's really interesting. Um, There was a time when, in the 1920s, when Hollywood was getting so bad, movies were getting so raunchy, and what was displayed on the screen wasn't kept on the screen. What was happening behind the scenes, what was happening in real life, was sexual abuse, rapes, adulterous affairs, and it was destroying Hollywood from the inside out. Uh, states were threatening to uh, to start uh, really regulating uh, the movie theater, and, uh, so Hollywood got a little scared. They decided to police themselves, and they hired Will, Will H. Hayes, who was a Presbyterian minister. And they say, "Hey, give us some guidelines so that we don't publish garbage, uh, so that we keep things clean, uh, so that our entertainment can be of good conscience. Give us some guidelines." And so they put this statement into place by 1930, and by 1934, it was strictly. Uh, um, uh regulated according to this list and there's a whole long list i'm just going to give you some of them this is again these uh this code was proposed in 1927 all right and they resolved quote that those things which are included in the following list shall not appear in pictures movies produced by the members of this association irrespective of the manner in which they are treated in other words, these things don't belong in a movie. Even if in the movie the characters are disgusted by these things, it shouldn't be in the movie. Number one, pointed profanity. By either title or lip. In other words, even in the subtitles or in the wordings of the of the name of the movie or in what the characters in the movie are saying, uh, to not use cuss words essentially, vulgar expressions, profane words, including uh, uses of god or lord or jesus christ number two in the list is any licentious or suggestive nudity in fact or in silhouette any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture a bunch of other things here about perversion uh and then number 10, I'll just throw this one in here, ridicule of the clergy. I don't know if you've ever noticed, uh, pretty much, I wanna say 99% of the time, a pastor or a priest or some clergy member is in a movie. He's an idiot, he's crazy. I mean, this goes back to War of the Worlds. The, the clergyman is the nutcase. Talking about the end of the world and quoting Revelation and stuff. They're always They're always insane or completely useless uh effeminate uh, there, there are all kinds of ways that they they uh demonstrate their view of the church and we watch this stuff we netflix this stuff uh we eat the stuff up we watch the sequels right we gather our families around the couch and we ex- excuse certain scenes because the greater story is just so entertaining it's so rip-roaring fun and it's so funny uh, but does but the, the, the lord find it funny now, I don't think we should use the Hayes Code from 1930 to define what we should watch as much as I want to appreciate uh, what that Presbyterian minister provided in, in 1930. Um, how about scripture? Think of a couple verses. Uh, the first one is Psalm 101, 3 to 4. And where the psalmist says uh, in Psalm 101, he says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now, they didn't have movies back when the psalmist wrote. But it's. It, uh, what are we setting before our eyes when we binge Netflix? I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. In other words... If the more I set things before my eyes, the greater the chance that those things stick. And so for those things to not stick, for those things to not cling to me, what I have to do is, like Job, make the covenant with my eyes. And so when John says, uh, it's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, because that's how it starts. It's what you set in front of your eyes. You convince yourself it will not affect you. It will not change you. Uh, but when Paul tells us to not be sucked into the vacuum, vacuous pattern of this world, but instead renew our minds, uh, we're definitely not doing that if we're setting before our eyes the kind of things that God hates. He says, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I want to put that stuff far from me. And I don't know. I think it's difficult to come up with exact standards. Right? Right. Uh, maybe we maybe some of our families in here need to come up with their own haze code you should not be dependent on the mpaa association to tell you what's rated r you remember back when you used to uh uh, go to blockbuster or family video and you knew that adult section in the back you're not supposed to go there who decides that that's adult and the stuff that's not in the adult section is not adult who decides that pagan people in hollywood decide that. Don't let them tell you when your child is ready to watch something. Don't don't let them define for you what you and your spouse should be watching together on a couch. That's the world. Use the Bible to come up with your standards. Now, your standards might be different from mine, and I might allow something you don't, or you might allow something I don't. And we all know of families out there who basically have banished TV and don't watch anything because everything is worldly. You know what? I'm not going to criticize them. I I can't say, oh, my goodness, you don't watch these movies. They're clean. What is wrong with you, you Neanderthal? Good for them. Good for them. But these are the kinds of things that I think uh, he's trying to protect us against, even though they didn't have technology back then. Could you imagine John and his beloved little children, as he calls them, after church, grabbing a meal and then going to uh, a, a theater, an amphitheater, and watching lewd scenes. Could you imagine that? Well, do we do that? From the privacy of our own homes on Netflix? What do we set before our eyes? One more verse uh, from Proverbs 5. Proverbs five fifteen to 17. Now, he's using poetic language. I hope you can pick up what he's saying so I can be careful about other ears in the homes. But he says, drink water from your own cistern. In other words, be satisfied with your wife, young man. You don't need that satisfaction from anyone that's not your wife. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now he reverses it. How would you like it if your wife didn't do that? How would you like it if your wife spread what's only yours to other people so he says should your springs be scattered abroad should your streams of water be scattered in the streets let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you should your wife's springs be scattered abroad streams of water in the streets imagine he said streams of water on the screens And when he says, don't let that be for you alone and not for strangers with you, you might go, well, that's not my wife up on the screen. That should be somebody's wife. And oftentimes it is somebody's wife. And just because she's paid, just because she consented to a contract that allows her to spread her springs out on the screen, doesn't mean you should partake. Those are strangers. And in this context, the stranger is someone who's not your spouse. The only reason why this is difficult for us to hear, the only reason why the chatter after this sermon is going to be, wow, pastor really went in, ooh, that was really hard. The only thing that makes it hard is how accustomed we've become to the world's standards. I mean, th- in 1930, some of this stuff was abominable. They had to put that code in place in 1930. Now, I'd, <laughs> go watch movies from prior to 1930. won't hold a candle to the stuff that's out there now. So if you need resources, if you need resources to help you discern uh the content of a movie before you watch the movie, uh reach out to me and I'll I'll point you in, in the direction of some resources. But I think one principle that's helpful if it's questionable and you're not sure, take a pass. Go read a book. Go play a board game. Go engage with someone uh, human and in person, Go have a conversation. uh You know, get into the word. When, when, when's the last time you picked up a theology book? And if we, if we if we put shows and movies and list them out on a sheet of paper that we've watched in one year, and pair that with how many books of the Bible we got familiar with, how many verses we've really dug into and took notes on, would that demonstrate where our love really is? uh is, is is that difficult yes is that difficult for me i grew up watching all kinds of movies i can't believe this stuff that i watched when i was a kid uh there there have been times where like hey hon let's 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 show this movie to the kids and, th- and then we look it up and we're like whoa <laughs> i don't even remember this stuff being in there right because um because it's it's we're so accustomed to these things uh that are in these uh sources of entertainment. And I got to tell you, pick up a book doesn't mean just pick up any book. I remember I was in an airport, and I picked up a book. It was like the, the best short stories of 2017, something like that. And I literally had to throw it in the garbage. It was a book. Now I don't want to read about scenes that describe Proverbs 5. That's not my wife. I literally chucked it in the trash. And so you might have to do a clean out. I commend that you come up with some standards and some rules that are not adopted from uh, Hollywood, but as you read scripture, what you think scripture talks about uh, as God's uh, heart and desire, the things that God loves uh, to come up with some standards for your entertainment songs that you listen to movie shows that you watch books, that you read the things that entertain us that are ungodly uh, because I think it It's difficult to cultivate a love for God. If we continue to entertain ourselves with things that are not of him, be willing to walk out of theaters, be willing to, uh, stop a show, uh, be willing to take, uh, Netflix off. If you're not able to control yourself, detox for a little bit, whatever you need to do to not set before your eyes, the things that are worthless. And so I want, you to think about the choices in your entertainment and whether those choices in entertainment prove what you love. If you love what the world loves, you can fill in the blankets more than just about entertainment, but scripture demonstrates that God's love uh, is a kind of love that demands loving him back and loving what he loves. And it's in contrast to the world's standards and it's contrast to the world's values and it's adhering to God's view on the matter when they conflict. Finally, verse 17 talks about the futility of loving the world. It doesn't even make sense to love the world. He wants to leave you with sort of a practical concern to say, look, it, it's, it's, there, there's a futility of loving the world, and it's shown in the fact that God saves. God's saving love is for those who love him instead of the world. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so it's the world, again, he brought this up before. The darkness is passing away. He's saying this world is passing away, so all of it is in vain. We invest in all of this stuff. We invest all these hours in these entertainment sources, or we invest all of this money in getting the third thing, the fourth thing, the bigger thing, the greater thing, the newer thing, the updates. And none of that stuff is going to last. All of that stuff is passing away. What lasts is the person who's obedient, the person who proved that they love God by obeying God. It's whoever does the will of God who abides forever. Again, John emphasizing, if you love God, you'll show it in your obedience. Amen. All right, Your love for God will be demonstrated in how you respond to this text. The fleshly temptation would be like, "Well, that's a preacher, he's supposed to say that while Pastor Lucas is really strict, I'm saying go back to scripture and allow scripture to define these things for you. Allow scripture to show you what God loves and allow your heart to set those things before your eyes instead. And it's proven in obedience. Uh, Now, here's what the world will tell you. Uh, You're a Christian. You're supposed to love everybody. What do they mean by that? Do we love everybody? Yeah, there's a sense in which we love everybody. Does God love everyone? Like I said in the beginning, there's a sense in which God does love everybody. There's another sense in which God hates wickedness. And what the world means by you should love everyone is you should love them by approving the things that they do that are worldly. Now I ask you, if verse 17 is true, the world and all its desires are passing away and only the ones that obey God are gonna make it. Is it loving to approve uh, a lifestyle, to approve behaviors, attitudes that demonstrate that that person is not going to make it? Is it loving to just be like, oh, God's cool with it. God's cool with it. And they're not going to abide forever? No, that's, that's not loving. That's damning. And so one of the ways we love our neighbors who are unbelievers who are trapped in the cravings and desires of this world is to uh, of course tell them we're not up on some high horse. We're forgiven people. We're broken people. We understand the cravings. We understand desires. I may not understand your particular cravings, but I've got my own. We all have cravings and we all have these desires, but thanks be to God. He has set his saving love upon me in a way that frees me from the flesh, frees me from the slavery to sin. I don't have to give into those cravings anymore. And he's giving me a new taste, a new craving to abhor those things and to love him and to love the things that he loves. And you can have that too. You can obey God. You can do the will of God. If you come to know Christ, the reason why Christ came to die is for our transformation, right? It's for our change so we can be different. And that's the hope that we offer. And this is proved in our love for God. This is proved in our rejection of the world and its desires, and we're not helping anyone. If we just want to have a comfortable conversation with them and let them know that we like them a lot, this has to go beyond liking people, but loving them with the truth and helping them understand there is a way out of darkness, and it is light. This letter is to encourage you to know that you are saved, to know that the love of God is in you, and you may be convicted about certain things that don't comport with love for God, things that don't match loving God. But the the part of the thing that he's emphasizing in this letter is that you can overcome. That if God's word abides in you, verse fourteen, you've overcome the evil one. There's a you can do itness to this letter. You you can do this. You you can stamp out evil cravings, and uh, sort of resuscitate and encourage godly cravings in you it is possible for you to do it those of you who've ever gone on a really strict uh, diet and lost a lot of weight and got really healthy you remember how impossible that seemed at first and now you look back and you're like man i can't believe i used to eat all that stuff i can't believe i was addicted to that stuff Uh, some of you who are addicted to smoking or were alcoholics or whatever and you've had a long time of sobriety and you look back and i can't believe that was my life i would get blasted every single night i can't believe that in my early 20s, I only remember uh, two-thirds of everything because I was so stoned all the time. Uh, yeah, you'll get to that point where you'll look back and go, I can't believe I watched that stuff. I can't believe I read those kind of things. I can't believe that used to feel normal to me. You have to trust that God will develop the maturity in you to overcome the evil one as you turn things over to him. And it has a lot to do with yeah. what you allow God to cultivate in your life. So I want to encourage you the things that God talks about that are difficult to embrace—they're difficult because we're still—we uh, still are battling cravings. Uh, the fact that you are sensitive to those cravings doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. Uh, but if you just sort of give in to them and there's no fight, there's no resistance, there's no striving—yeah, that's a problem. That's a difficulty. But if there is a striving, that's a good sign. And if you're in Christ, He will give you the grace that is necessary to conquer these things.